Our Father, we pause once again to be reminded of the fact that, Lord, apart from You, we can do nothing. You have been so gracious to us this week in sustaining us through so much of what's going on um, in the world around us. We thank You for the fact that You have been our sustenance. You have given us Your Spirit so that we would be enabled to live a life that honors You by Your grace. We thank you for the fact that even in the midst of so much that's happened in our country, you have sustained us. Lord, we understand that suffering and trials and the difficulties that we encounter are very much part of your design. Your word tells us that it is a grace that you've given us, even when we don't fully understand why we go through what we go through. We can rest and be confident in the fact that because of your divine character, we can trust you, that you have a design in this. So help us in the midst of the trials you bring to our lives, to live well under them, to consider them all joy whenever we encounter various trials, knowing from experience that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And we should let endurance have its perfect result, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You want to conform us into the image of your Son through these things. Father, we pray for our country this morning. Continue to pray for our leaders all over our country that... Lord, you may continue to work in the hearts of these individuals who are the decision makers in our country. We pray for our president. We pray for our vice president. That, Lord, you may continue to move in their hearts to bring your truth to bear through those that are around them, even believers who speak truth into their lives. Father, may we, Lord, continue to be people who pray for, Lord, our country. And, Lord, we pray for even those all over the world, other countries and the persecuted church that is experiencing difficulty all over the world. Lord, we pray for our brethren. We pray that you would sustain them. We pray that you would continue to cause them to be dependent upon you. We pray that in the midst of things that they're experiencing that we, would, we don't even know about, that we will one day find out in heaven that, Father, you may strengthen them, that you may comfort them with your presence, that you may encourage their hearts. Father, we thank you for even the opportunity that we have to still be publicly worshiping this way in our country, even in our state, in our city of Los Angeles, we thank you for the grace that you've given to us to be in, a, in an air-conditioned building with clean water and clean bathrooms. Father, thank you for even those things that maybe in the grand scheme of things are little things. Father, we just thank you that you care for even the little things in our lives. Father, we thank you for your word that we're able to open up even now, and we pray that you would bless the preaching and the contemplation and the application of your word. Help us to be people who are recharged this morning as we reflect upon the person and the work of our Savior so that we would continue to be encouraged, pursuing sanctification, and being on mission for the sake of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to John chapter 18 by way of introduction. John chapter 18. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please do so. We're going to start just by way of introduction in John chapter 18, verses 12 through 24. And after this, we'll go to Mark chapter 14, okay? John 18, verses 12 through 24. And always remember that this is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Amen? So the Roman cohort and the commander... And the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. 
Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. And the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of these, these, this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers worst were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answered the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightfully, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. And I want you to turn your Bibles now to Mark chapter 14 and verses 53 to 65 is our text for this morning. But that particular account that we just read, John chapter 12 or 18 verses 12 through 24, I want you to take note, happens before this particular passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in Mark chapter 14 verses 53 to 65. And now we're getting into the arrest and the trial of Jesus, really specifically his Jewish trial. And remember the context. On, on this same night, what has happened? Our Lord Jesus on this same night has celebrated the Passover in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem with his disciples. And then in the aftermath of that same night, they made their way over to a known location, sort of a little retreat area that had been for them, called the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's here that Jesus spends considerable time in prayer, knowing the, the impending attacks that were coming upon him. Not only that, but he also encouraged his disciples, if you remember, repeatedly, in light of the spiritual warfare that they were going to face, that they needed to also be prayerful. Because they were going to experience spiritual warfare unlike anything that they had experienced to that particular point. And so already, it's been an emotionally packed day. It's been a, a night where Jesus is tired. So are the disciples, of course. It's been a long night full of much reflection and contemplation and teaching. And now Jesus is arrested here. He's arrested and what's important to note as we get into these, this trial of Jesus is that there are two separate trials that we're going to encounter here in the life of our Lord. Two separate trials. There is later on, beginning in chapter 15 and verse 1 of Mark, the civil or political trial before the Roman authorities that Jesus is going to encounter. But first and foremost is his religious trial before the Jewish authorities. And this religious trial is going to come in three phases. 
Phase number one is what we just read right now from John chapter 18, verses 12 through 24. Phase one is this preliminary questioning, this illegal questioning in secret, not publicly and around other witnesses, but in secret that Annas, the former high priest, did with Jesus. He is the father-in-law, Annas is, of the current high priest who is Caiaphas. And so Mark doesn't give us that phase number one. But I thought it was important for us to go into John chapter 18 and those verses 12 through 24 to read what happens in phase number one of Jesus' religious trial. And what we get then is phase two here in our passage in Mark 14, which is an arraignment before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin that takes place at night illegally, by the way. For these types of things that were not to happen at night, as we're going to see later. And so this is our passage here, and the parallel account is given for us in Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68, this phase number two of the arraignment before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And then there's going to be a phase three, which is a formal condemnation by the Sanhedrin in a brief meeting after dawn. The parallel account of Matthew 27, verse 1, says that they conferred together. Did the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, they conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. That's the formal condemnation and phase number three, if you will. So these are three phases in Jesus' religious trial before his Jewish authorities. And so by now in our passage, Jesus has already gone through phase one where Annas, the former high priest, has questioned him. Now, you need to understand some things about Annas, who is this individual sort of behind the scenes in this whole thing. But definitely, he is a a powerhouse. Annas is the father-in-law of the current high priest, whose name is Caiaphas, and he's really the power behind the Sanhedrin. He's the the behind-the-scenes guy. He's the mafia godfather, if you will. He's the Don Colleone of the Sanhedrin, if you will. And he had previously been a high priest, previously. But he has such a monopoly, he has such authority and power and such control over the Sanhedrin that the next five high priests after Annas were a part of his family. And in the present, Caiaphas, his son-in-law, had been high priest for at least a couple of decades And all the while, behind the scenes, Annas wielded his influence. But this man, Annas, was a wicked man. He was a wicked man. He was a corrupt individual. In fact, the concerns that Jesus had throughout his three and a half years of public ministry about the corruption of the temple, it was really Annas who was the mastermind, the brains behind the corruption of the temple in Jerusalem. He's the one. A corrupt man. Far from a spiritual man was this man. He was a power-hungry individual. He was greedy. And he exercised great influence over the Jewish people, even over the Sanhedrin, over the ruling body of the Jews. And so phase one, in phase one, Jesus had stood, has stood before this man, Annas, illegally, with no one around to defend Jesus, no other witnesses around. He has already been interrogated by this individual. Phase one. And now we enter into phase two of this Jewish... Um, trial that Jesus encounters. And in this particular passage, I want us to hang our thoughts this morning, just for note-taking purposes, under seven movements, okay? Seven movements in this particular passage 
as we reflect upon the person and the work of our Lord Jesus, and specifically his passion and his trial, his suffering. We see, first of all, the valiant prisoner. We see the valiant prisoner in verse 53. This is none other than our Lord Jesus. He's already been ridiculed to some extent. He's already been arrested. He's already been bound. And now he's brought to the palace of the Jewish high priest in Jerusalem. This is where Caiaphas, the current high priest, lived. But listen, this is also where Annas, his father-in-law, also lived in this same place. So this was a family affair. Now, the palace of the high priest had an upper room somewhere on the second floor of that particular building. There was a place where they would hold their official meetings. There was a large enough meeting room where the whole Sanhedrin would fit and any other guests or visitors. Counting the high priest, there were 71 members of the Jewish Sanhedrin who by now had arrived to um, interrogate Jesus and to watch this whole thing. The high priest was the one who presided over this ruling body. And so Caiaphas is going to preside over this. That's why we're told in verse 53 that they led Jesus away to the high priest, speaking specifically here of Caiaphas now. And all the chief priests, verse 53, and the elders and the scribes gathered together. It says if this is happening before our very eyes, they all come in. Here they are. Jesus has gone right in to the lion's den in the palace of the high priest. And all of the choice members of the various categories of religious leaders are represented here in the, in the, in the Sanhedrin. The, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, some individuals from the elders of the people. All of these groups were represented here in the Sanhedrin. And so mark it. Jesus has already been illegally questioned by Annas and struck by one of the officers. And who knows what else? We merely get, get a synopsis, glimpses, snapshots of what happens to Jesus. He's already been pushed around, bound at his wrists like some common criminal, even though he wasn't that. And now our valiant and innocent Savior stands before Caiaphas and the corrupt Jewish Sanhedrin. You know, one of the things that I think is so important, and as I studied this gospel, and especially now the passion of Christ, his suffering... I've been jotting down some of the the wonderful attributes of Christ. Attributes of the eternal Son of God, which of course are true of the Father and the Spirit as well. Because they share of the same essence, nature, right? And it's wonderful to be able to reflect upon the attributes of Christ as you watch how Jesus responds to these religious enemies here. And one of the things that you see here, and you can't miss, is what Jesus said concerning himself in Matthew chapter 10. That he is gentle and humble in heart. Remember that? We see that even here as he's experiencing all of these things. Bound at the wrists, struck by one of the officers, being interrogated by a wicked man who is hypocritical in his own life. And yet he's pointing his his finger at Jesus, who is the righteous one. In the midst of all of this, we see the humility and the gentleness and the meekness of Christ. Someone has defined meekness or gentleness as power under control. To be meek or gentle is to be a person who is characterized by power under control, flowing from a heart of humility. 
If that's the case, and if that's how we are to define meekness and gentleness, then Christ was the ultimate model of meekness and gentleness. Amen? This is our Lord. Talk about power under control. He who is the one who created the heavens and the earth, the universe by the mere word of His power, who just a short time before this in the Garden of Gethsemane, by His mere word, the mob dropped down to the floor. Remember that? He could certainly take these guys out in an instant. And yet He willingly, joyfully humbles Himself before sinful men. Wow. Look secondly at the distant follower. A distant follower in verse 54. This is very interesting. For just a, a split second, the, the scene shifts from the upper room of the palace to the outer courtyard. And what we have here is Mark giving us a glimpse at what Peter has been up to this whole time. Look at verse 54. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. This is all that Mark, up to this point, wants us to know about Peter. Where he is. Very interesting. Within this larger paragraph of Jesus in the upper room of the second floor of the palace of the high priest, he's being interrogated, and all that Mark gives us at this point is this little verse that seems out of context, but we know later on why Mark does this. He wants us to have a snapshot of what Peter is doing. And what had happened is that upon Jesus being arrested and bound in the Garden of Gethsemane, most of the disciples having fled, with the exception, as we're going to find out, of the Apostle John as well, Peter had followed the mob from a distance. Perhaps fearful for his own life, but with a a sense of curiosity. Wanting to see what was going to happen to his Lord, to Jesus. And so here's Peter, seemingly with good intentions. He obviously loves Jesus. He wants to do what is, what is right. Now, how did Peter make it into the palace of the high priest? I mean, after all, not everyone was allowed in there. Well, we just read in John chapter 18 and verse 15 that there was another disciple who had also followed Jesus from a distance, and his name is John. Specifically, this is John. And apparently John, the, the disciple of Christ, was well known to the high priest. And so because of his reputation with the high priest, John was able to get himself into the palace and also get Peter into the courtyard of the high priest. We don't get any more information about where John is. Only Peter. Mark specifically wants us to know about Peter. And he zeroes in on him, doesn't he? Later on, we're going to see why. Mark, brothers and sisters, wants us to catch a glimpse at what Peter is doing. And at first glance, this seems like a harmless action from the very concerned Peter. Maybe he's being courageous as he's gone into the lion's den. But I think that part of what Mark is showing us here, and we're going to see this more clearly next week, is this: he's already drawing this, this contrast between Peter, who is the faithless one, the one full of failure, as we're going to see in this account, and Jesus, who is the ultimate faithful, righteous one in the upper room. And we're going to see next week how Peter is really a, a sitting duck who has positioned himself to have a massive fall here. He is sitting among the lions. He's by the fire, ironically, all the while playing with fire by sitting among Jesus' own enemies. 
Listen, Peter is, is vulnerable already. Peter that night is, or has already positioned himself by not being a man of prayer as his Lord had exhorted him and encouraged him. He's already vulnerable to temptation, to the inward solicitation to evil by Satan. Peter has slept through prayer in the garden. He had not taken a humble approach to Jesus' warnings that, that all of them would walk away from him at his arrest. He's claimed utter loyalty to Jesus. He hasn't humbled himself at Jesus' ongoing repeated encouragement. Peter would fail miserably, as Mark is going to show us. And yet, in the end, he will be an encouraging and comforting example to us, brothers and sisters, of a man who went from, from struggling to thriving, from fallen to forgiven, from faithless to counted faithful in Christ, despite himself, despite his vulnerabilities, despite his weaknesses. For our encouragement, a reminder to us, by way of Peter, as we're going to see that no matter what you've done, no matter where you are today, the pathway to Christ-exalting change is humble repentance before God. The pathway to humble, to, to Christ-exalting change in your life, to renewal, is humble repentance before God. This is such a good reminder for us, isn't it? Because we're not perfected. Anyone here perfect? Pay attention, elders, so that we can talk to somebody after, right? None of us are perfect. None of us are absolutely blameless like the Savior, like the Redeemer is blameless. This is such a good reminder for us because the Christian life is far from flawless. Far from perfect. Far, we are far, far, far away from struggles in our lives. All of us are striving to be like Christ, but we are imperfect and inadequate, right? In fact, if you're concerned about being like Christ... As a believer, each and every day you will lie your head on your pillow at night, both exhausted from your struggle against sin and yet resting in the Savior, being reminded that particular day that were it not for the grace of God, there is no way in the world that you could have gone through that day, right? Every night I'm reminded of this. Both what a battle today with my own flesh, with my own sinful thoughts, and yet, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. I pray for renewal. I confess my sin to you. Thank you for your grace. And tomorrow, Lord, I'm going to need the same grace to be able to get through. We're going to see this from the life of Peter and reflect upon some of these things. This is the Christian life. And Peter is a microcosm of that. Peter will come to the point, brothers and sisters, of seeing his sin, of acknowledging it, and running to the only one who can forgive him and renew him, namely Jesus, the all-sufficient Savior. And that's what we're going to learn together, even as we get a snapshot of what Peter is doing here in verse 54. He's a sitting duck. He's vulnerable. He's positioned for a massive satanic attack and fall. Now notice next, third, the false witnesses, the false witnesses in verses 55 through 59. Back to Jesus, the camera returns. And what we need to keep in mind is that the Jewish authorities don't have the power to execute anyone to inflict capital punishment upon Jesus in this instance. And so what do they need? They need to bring evidence 
to the Roman government in order to get Jesus executed. And so, they've been on a long-term search, at least three and a half years, trying to procure false witnesses who will testify against Jesus. Look at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. I mean, these guys have been running around trying to find false witnesses who will even lie about Jesus. And because they were even bribing and paying people to do this, they found some of them. Look at verse 56. For many were giving false testimony against Jesus, but their testimony was not consistent. You see, in order for evidence to stick and to be used for indicting Jesus, it had to be consistent according to the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. But person after person is coming forward and their testimonies are not lining up against Jesus. They are contradicting each other. Look at verse 57. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against Jesus, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Now that's not what Jesus said or what Jesus meant. You know what they're referencing? They're referencing John chapter 2. Some three years ago, the first time when Jesus, upon initiating His public ministry, entered the temple in Jerusalem. And at that time, Jesus, in a great act of zeal, as He did later on, three years later, overturned the tables of the money changers and began to clean house in the temple. And at the time, outraged by what Jesus had done, the religious leaders asked Jesus, what sign do you show to us? Show us a sign that point to the reality that you have authority to do such things. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, destroy this temple, the temple of his body, and in three days I will raise it up. And they didn't understand what Jesus meant They thought that he was speaking of the physical temple in Jerusalem, but Jesus was speaking of his physical body. John chapter 2 verse 21 tells us that in John's commentary, that he was speaking, Jesus was of the temple of his body. That after being killed, he would rise again on the third day. And so they've been sitting on this. They've been sitting on this for three years. And what are they doing right now? They are misrepresenting Jesus' words. They are twisting what Jesus actually said and meant for their own benefit. This is always the way of deception, isn't it? This is always the way that Satan works, brothers and sisters, even in our society. It isn't that Satan just throws out explicit denials of the truth. Sometimes that's the case, even as we're seeing in our own culture. Things are pretty black and white. But Satan doesn't always do this. You know what he does instead? He'll misrepresent Christians. He'll misrepresent the truth. He'll lump all religions into one pot and call that biblical Christianity. He'll twist the truth just a little bit, just a little tear. That's how Satan works in deceiving the world. This is the way of the Sanhedrin. Before Jesus here. 
the other day we were watching a debate, one of my kids and I, about between a Christian apologist and an atheist. And they were debating the existence of God. Does God exist or not? And if he, he does exist, what kind of a God is he? But they never even got to the latter part. Because at one point in the debate, the atheist says to the audience, packed that, that auditorium with people, and he says this, one of the evidences that God does not exist are the atrocities committed by Christians over the centuries. If your God existed, he says to the people out there, if your God existed, then his character would be reflected in his followers and such things would not have happened. Hmm. Now it's true, if we reflect on that statement, that there have been some genuine Christians who failed miserably over the centuries, right? For sure. Even genuine Christians do sin and are sinners and can sin terribly. That's why it's not about you. It's about the grace of God, right? Objectively outside of you. Christians are sinners saved by grace. And that's why even as we read in the Old Testament, the point is never those biblical characters in the Old Testament and how great they are and sinless they are and wonderful and and they never show any weakness. The point as we look at those characters in the Old Testament is that God works despite their weaknesses, as he does in our own life. And so Christians can certainly fail miserably, as he said. But the problem with his statement is that he assumes that all those people he's talking about are genuine Christians, and they're not. Some are from other world religions. Some are, have been Muslims. Some have been Buddhists. Some have been people who followed the, the great pagan philosophies of our world. And some are just false professing believers. Furthermore, this man assumed that because his, his finite mind doesn't have an answer for why suffering and evil exists, that of course an infinite eternal God doesn't have an answer either. And so I love how even the, the apologist went on to expose some of these things in different, with different wording. So there was all kinds of twisting of the truth with this individual. And beloved, that is the way of the world. That is the way that it's always been done by Satan and his followers who distort the truth, who misrepresent Christians and biblical Christianity, who sprinkle false or half-truths along with the truth to make Satan lies, his lies believable and to get people deceived in our world. This is the way it's always been. And this is why for all of us, but especially you younger people, This is the case for every single one of us sitting in here. But especially you young people, can I plead with you and remind you again as your pastor, 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That is a call for you to practice discernment. Discernment is the ability not only to distinguish between good and evil, but between what is good and best in your life. Even in those areas that don't fall into sin or no sin, what is best? What is it that glorifies God? What is it that is consistent with His holy revealed Word? You need to practice discernment because the way of the world has always been to twist the truth and to sprinkle in a little truth here, a little truth there with the falsehood of the world. 
Give heed to the Word of God in this area, especially today in our heathen culture, especially here in Los Angeles. We understand that this is happening here, right? Well, thankfully, Satan doesn't succeed with all of these false witnesses. Look at verse 59. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. They couldn't agree. The witnesses didn't match. No matter who they brought forward, it was very clear that there was deception here. Well, this leads us forth to the desperate interrogator. The desperate interrogator in verses 60 and 61. Notice this. Embarrassed and and exasperated by their failure to procure valid testimony, the high priest now forcefully attacks Jesus, and in a great act of desperation, look at verse 60, the high priest stood up and came forward. He's trying to intimidate our Lord. That's what you do, right? You walk towards somebody and you get in their face like this. It's all about intimidation. And this is what insecure people do, by the way. They try to intimidate. This high priest is the ultimate insecure person. He goes up to Jesus forward and questions Jesus saying, verse 60, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Why is he even bringing up the men who are testifying against him anymore? They've been proven to be false. Their testimonies are inconsistent, right? In a normal legal proceeding, the high priest should just let that go and Jesus should be set free. But he's all concerned about making sure that Jesus is indicted and executed no matter what, right? They've already arrived at a conclusion about Jesus. Now he's trying to get Jesus to say something that would be self-incriminating. But Jesus is so wise. Look at verse 61. But he, Jesus kept silent and did not answer. What for? He didn't need to answer. They're doing a pretty good job of contradicting one another, right? He doesn't have to have to say anything to defend himself. Makes me think of Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is what? Wise. This is Jesus right here. He's the ultimate wise redeemer, savior. But I think there's also something prophetic in here about Jesus' response, isn't there? Because, you see, 700 years or so before this instance, this situation going on, in Isaiah 53, in that great chapter of the future suffering servant, who we now know to be Jesus, it says in Isaiah 53, verse 7, that the future Messiah, who would one day be oppressed and afflicted, that he would not open his mouth while this is happening. That he would be like a lamb that is led to to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Why, this is Jesus. 700 to 750 years later, This is Christ, the Lamb of God who would humbly suffer. But the high priest, of course, is not going to let up. Even though Jesus is silent, he wants reason to have Jesus executed. Look at verse 61. Again, highlighting the persistence of this high priest. Again, the high priest was questioning Jesus, not just once, not just twice. The sense here of the verb is that he was continually interrogating him. Continually questioning Jesus. And now watch this. He cuts to the chase, doesn't he? 
saying to Jesus, are you the Christ? The son of the blessed one. The blessed one was God. Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God by which he meant? Are you equal with God? Are you deity? Oh, this was the crux issue, wasn't it? This was the single greatest issue, beloved, that people had with Jesus, especially the religious leaders, who he claimed to be. That was the issue that they struggled most with Jesus about. In fact, some time ago in John 10, 25, they had asked him, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered in John 10, 30, I and the Father are what? One. And they picked up stones to stone him. And then they said to Jesus in John 10, 33, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. This was the core issue. Jesus' identity and his claims that he was God. Caiaphas knows this. He's going for the jugular here. If he can get Jesus to affirm his claim to be God before everybody around, then they can accuse Jesus of blasphemy and get him executed. According to the law, Leviticus 24, 16, blasphemy was punishable by death, by capital punishment, according to Leviticus 24 and verse 16. And so Caiaphas asks, are you the Messiah? Are you the the son of the blessed one? Do you claim equality with God and thus deity? Now, Jesus is under oath here. Matthew 26, verse 63 says that Caiaphas told Jesus, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. He's under oath. What's he going to, to answer? Listen, if there was ever a time for Jesus to set the record straight about the fact that no, I am not God, here is the time because his life is basically at stake. If there was ever a time for him to say, no, that is not who I am, here is the moment. But he does the exact opposite, doesn't he? Look fifth at the truthful Redeemer. The truthful Redeemer in verse 62. Jesus has said concerning himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And here is an example of how he was the personified truth who spoke the very truth of God. Look at verse 62. His answer, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? Jesus says in verse 62, I am. Ego eimi. I am. He truthfully declares, I am both the long-awaited Messiah and I am the son of God, by which he means I am deity. I am God. Wow. Now watch this. Not only does he declare his identity as God, but he also goes further to declare to them the implications of who he is, that he is judge. Verse 62, And you shall see the Son of Man, speaking of himself, sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's a reference to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, where Daniel is given a vision of the Son of Man, the future Messiah, who is given dominion and power to judge the very world. Jesus, in essence, is saying, that right there is me. That's me. I am that Son of Man. 
who will sit at the right hand of power, and I will return with the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. What a statement. He draws out, brothers and sisters, the implication of who he is for the future. If you don't embrace me as a saving Messiah, as the God-man, you will one day perish on judgment day. Here they are thinking, these religious leaders are thinking that they're judging Jesus, and yet, all the while, one day they will have to answer to him, to Christ And by the way, as we reflect on this, this is the case not only for them during that time, but it's the case for each and every one of us, right? Acts 17.31 says that God, God will one day judge the world through Christ, through the man who is Christ. And the greatest, most important question that you will have to answer in this life and in the future is who do you believe Jesus to be? That's why Jesus is zeroing in on this here. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Can I ask you that today? What about you sitting in here listening or watching live, by live stream? Who do you believe Jesus to be? Do you believe that Jesus, who walked on this planet some 2,000 years ago, is God a very God? You must do so. If you are to be to receive him as your Lord and Savior, you must believe that Jesus is the God-man who alone qualifies to save you and rescue you from your sins, to give you eternal life. You must believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, God of very God, who came into the world to live the perfect, sinless life that you should have lived but cannot because you and I fall desperately short. We are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. You must believe that Jesus is the God-man who died to pay for your personal sins if you are to be saved. You must believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, God of very God, who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, proving that He is God and proving that He conquered and had victory over sin and death on behalf of sinners who put their faith in Him. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is Jesus. And once again, he's proclaiming to them in an act of mercy, this is who I am. He didn't have to say that, did he? But he's proclaiming to them, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am God as the Father is God. And one day, I'm going to be the one to return to judge the living and the dead. It's almost like an act of mercy and and, and grace to them, isn't it? in the midst of their wickedness and corruption and their hatred and hostility toward Jesus. What a merciful Savior. So one day soon, it's Christ who will return to earth to judge the living and the dead. Listen, one day future, this humble lamb who came to give himself as a ransom for many, subjected himself joyfully and voluntarily and willingly to sinful men. One day he will come the second time as a lion, shedding the blood of his enemies, of those who have rejected the fact that he's the only savior of the world. One day Christ is returning in fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Can I ask you, do you belong to him? This morning, have you made things right with your holy and righteous creator? 
Have you come to turn from your sins, repented of your sins, and trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone? Or are you trusting in church attendance? Or are you trusting in your, some inherent goodness? Are you trusting in your good works? Are you trusting in your giving? Are you trusting in your humanitarian efforts? Are you saying it's Jesus plus these other things? Listen, it's Jesus alone. Trust in Him alone and be rescued from the wrath of God. Jesus is returning someday to judge the living and the dead. What an act of mercy and grace to these wicked men to still preach the gospel to them. Now notice next, the hypocritical accuser. The hypocritical accuser in verses 63 and 64. This declaration by Jesus, instead of causing the high priest and the others to humbly say, you know what? Yes, We believe that you're the Messiah. We believe your claims. We want to turn from our sins. We want to trust in you. Instead of doing that, it evokes a strong and hypocritical reaction by the high priest, doesn't it? And hypocritical because it's it's exactly what he expected Jesus to confess. Look at verse 63. Tearing his clothes. This is an expression of, of utter outrage. Tearing his clothes. The high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you, to the rest of the Sanhedrin? How do you judge this? What a clown. What a clown, this guy. All of this is is an act. He even calls for a vote for unanimous, formal sentencing of Jesus, who has already been proven innocent by virtue of the fact that there aren't any legitimate witnesses. And of course, he gets what he wants, this high priest, verse 63 or 64, and they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Surprise, surprise. This is all he ever, they ever wanted, right? Matthew 26, verse 66, the parallel account says that they were declaring he is deserving of death. That was even before the trial. They had already arrived at this particular indictment. Now you realize... All of this is illegal activity by the Sanhedrin, by the Jewish authorities on multiple levels. There are no true witnesses. No true crime has been committed. In fact, when you survey Pharisaical laws, depending on what sources you look into, there were certain things that needed to guide this Jewish trial of Jesus and certain things that were forbidden regarding Jewish trials. What are some of those? That a trial involving the the possibility of capital punishment could only be held in the temple and publicly. Is that what's happening here? What are they doing? Secrecy in the palace of the high priest where anything could be said or happen. Two, such a trial involving the possibility of capital punishment, and that's the key, should not be the result of a bribe. And what happened with Judas Iscariot? They bribed him. Third, if a person was sentenced to death after a fair trial, you could not make the formal pronouncement of that death sentence until three days later after the fact. In other words, think about this. If such a serious pronouncement was to be made that somebody was deserving of death, there was to be a a three-day period of incubation, of percolating, or of pause before making that formal pronouncement of capital punishment. 
That's not what happens. Before 3 p.m., Jesus is dead, right? Fourth, such a trial involving the possibility of capital punishment could not happen at night. When is this whole thing happening? Late at night. Five, no trial possibly involving capital punishment should be held during or after a major feast or festival. What was the festival that they celebrated that night? Passover. This is audacious, isn't it? This is outrageous what they're doing here. Sixth, and there are others, but I'll leave it at this. In a normal trial, the benefit of the doubt was given to the accused. You see anything here giving Jesus the benefit of the doubt? Absolutely nothing. They had already decided on a verdict against him according to verse 55. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and what? Kill him. They had already decided on all of this. The point is, brethren, that Jesus' trial before the Jews was a violation of these and other principles of justice. As I was contemplating this, you know, we think that we have experienced injustice in our country. We think, man, this has, been, this has been really bad. My rights have been taken away from me. And again, I am not saying that we should not speak into those things even in our country, i.e. appeal even to the Constitution. We've dealt with some of that before. But we think that we've experienced injustice. Look at your Savior. Look at Christ. Here is the example of the ultimate injustice, of unfair treatment, if you will. Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. He was experiencing all of this. And that wasn't it. This should have been the end of it, right? As unjust as it was to this point, this should have been the end of it, but it's what happens now in verse 65 that really reveals the inner hostility and outward hatred of Jesus' enemies. Look seventh at the violent enemies in verse 65. This is astounding here. All respectability, all formalism went out the window here. Some, verse 65, began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. Listen, these were first and foremost the religious leaders. Those who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the people are doing this to Jesus. All respectability, all formalism is out the window and they're now showing explicitly their hatred of Jesus. Their hostility toward Him. They began shaming Him by spitting at Him. And they put a sheet over His head and they were punching Him repeatedly, mocking Him. Prophesy! Prophesy, you Christ! Who is it that hits you? Says Matthew 26, verse 68. Who is it that hits you? And once the so-called spiritual leaders were done with him, they passed our Lord off to the officers. Look at verse 65. And the officers received him with slaps. And the implication there is slaps in the, in the face. That was the ultimate act of humiliation and ridicule. To slap someone that way was to, to shame them. This is everything that Jesus is going through. This is his passion. This is his suffering, not just his death on the cross, but all of the suffering and shame that he experienced before that, brothers and sisters. For us who have trusted in him. For us. 
Listen to one pastor who writes, quote, We can easily conceive that this was not the least heavy part of our blessed Savior's passion or suffering. Imagine to be seized unjustly as a criminal and put on trial when innocent. That is a severe affliction. But to hear people inventing false charges against us and coining slanders, to listen to all the malignant tongues let loose against our character and know that it is untrue, that is a cross indeed. All this was only part of the cup of suffering which Jesus drank for our sakes. Great indeed was the price at which our souls were redeemed. End quote. So you've got to personalize this. You've got to personalize this. Because it would be very easy for us as we contemplate these accounts to think of Jesus just, just going through these things separate or apart from us. Well, I wasn't the one that did that to Jesus. I wasn't slapping him. I wasn't doing those things. Listen, he underwent that for the purpose of redeeming you and dying on the cross for your sins. The culmination of his atoning sacrifice was his death on the cross, the moment where he took the wrath of God upon himself for your sins. But everything before that was part of the, what he went, underwent through for us, for our sins. And yet Hebrews 12 two says that he did it willingly who for the joy set before him, set before Jesus, endured the cross, despising the shame. What a Savior. What a Savior. He didn't do this reluctantly. It wasn't plan B. This was according to the design of God. What a Savior, brothers and sisters. Like that wonderful song says, Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Ruined sinners to reclaim. That's why Jesus came into the world. You understand that? For the glory of His Father and to reclaim you who belong to Him as His creature so that you by faith would live out your purpose to glorify Him now and forevermore. He came to reclaim you. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen? Amen. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Ponder that. This is who we were. We were guilty before our holy creator, helpless, unable to save ourselves. Brothers and sisters, we were lost. But now we've been found by our Savior, right? And this is where some of you are right now. Lost, guilty, helpless, but you don't have to remain there. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Live up the purpose for which you were created. To glorify God and enjoy Him now and forevermore. Trust in Christ. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless Lamb of God was He. Sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah, what a Savior! What's, hallelujah means praise. This is, brothers and sisters, beloved, why we sing. This is why we sing. This is why we're going to sing after I close in prayer. Because our hearts are so moved and so captivated by the majesty of the person and the work of Jesus. And we're so gripped by everything that he's done that we can't help but to sing to him. 
People who don't sing need to come back and be captivated by the glory of Christ. There's something wrong with people who don't sing. I have a terrible voice. Don't even make the excuse that it's because you have a bad voice. You don't want to hear me sing, okay? Yesterday we were at somebody's birthday party. And the parents came over to me and said, Pastor, it would be great for you to lead us. No, 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 brother, you do not want me singing, okay? But who cares? Who cares? When you're so moved in your spirit and your heart by the glory of Jesus, you can't help but to praise, to adore the King, to claim, hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen? Amen. So worship. As we read and reflect on what Jesus underwent for you and I, brothers and sisters, can I ask you? What is the state of your heart toward Jesus right now? How is your love life with relation to Christ right now? Are you full of a sense of awe for Christ? Or have these things become so familiar to you? You're bored with Jesus. When are we going to get through Mark and go to another to tell me what to do? The 10 things that I need to go do. I'm tired of talking about Jesus and his majesty and his person. Listen to me. If the more that you're captivated by Jesus, the more you're fueled to loving obedience. Otherwise, it's just behavior modification. There's no sustainability in that obedience when you don't do things out of a love for Christ because you adore him and you worship him and you want to praise him with the way that you obey him. So what is the state of your heart towards Jesus? Can it be said of you this morning, with regards to Christ, that familiarity has bred contempt in your heart towards Jesus? For some of us, we're bored with Jesus. Some of us are, we've, I've moved on past the basic things about this Jesus guy. I want to talk about all the other theological matters. Listen to me. He is... Everything in Scripture, according to Luke chapter 24, by his own mouth, he says, speaks of me, Jesus said. Everything ultimately points to Christ. You don't move away from the person and the work of Jesus, ever. He is the gospel, and every day, even as believers, the gospel is for Christians too. We preach the gospel to ourselves, and that is the fuel that then drives obedience and service and love for one another and mission. Why would you want to go tell the world about the Savior if you're not even in love with Him? They don't want to hear you. If you don't love Christ, if He hasn't, there's that this sense that He's changed my life and I can't help but to tell you about Him. If they don't see that passion in you, then they're not going to want to hear what you have to say. Listen, if this is you, If you've grown cold and and indifferent to Christ, you need to repent of that cold, callous heart towards King Jesus. Today, you need to confess, Lord, I have a hardened heart. Please renew me. Like David said in Psalm 51, upon confessing his sin, restore unto me the the joy of your salvation. He wasn't saying, Lord, I've lost my salvation. He says, restore unto me the joy of your salvation and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Why? Because sin and unconfessed sin and lethargy towards God shuts down our lips from praising God. That's why in Psalm 51, he says, open my lips, David says. Unseal my lips. Why have they been sealed? Why are they shut in the life of David? Because he has been living in known unrepentant sin in his life. Open my lips that I might praise you again. 
That's the heart that pleases the Lord, beloved. And so worship, adoration, praise should be our response as we ponder the sufferings of Christ and His passion. There's one further application here, and that is in relation to our experience of suffering, isn't there? You see, all the while this is happening to Jesus in this upper room, Peter is outside, and later on, 1 Peter chapter 2, turn there with me, 1 Peter chapter 2. Later on, Peter would contemplate the sufferings of Christ and he would write about Jesus' example for us when we as believers suffer. Look at 1 Peter 2.19. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. In other words, don't suffer for the sake of unrighteousness, but for the sake of righteousness. That pleases the Lord. Look at verse 21. For you, believer, have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, we've seen this in this text, haven't we? While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the, tree, on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. You see, whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, and that would include, beloved, the sufferings of Christ and what happened to Christ and His example for us as believers, as Christians, living in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation in the present, right? That like our Savior, like Christ, we should suffer for the sake of righteousness, not because of our sin. That wouldn't be righteous suffering like Christ. That like Christ, we should suffer without attacking in return. That like Christ, we should suffer anchoring our trust and hope in God who judges righteously. And that like Christ, we should entrust ourselves to God. And so what should our response be to all that we've been witnessing in the life of Christ? It should be this sense of appreciation for what he underwent and continues to undergo by way of his passion, his suffering for our sins, and to an anticipation of suffering in life as believers and embracing of that. And boy, do we need grace to be able to suffer well. Amen? I'm not there. I need the grace of God and the strength of the Spirit of God to learn to do that well, beloved. I know you feel the same way, but let's look to our Savior who did just that. Amen? I close with our brother Spurgeon. Let it never surprise true Christians if they are slandered and misrepresented in this world. They must not expect to fare better than their Lord. Let them rather look forward to it as a matter of course and see in it a part of the cross which everyone must bear after conversion. Lies and false reports are among Satan's choicest weapons. When he cannot deter people from serving Christ, he labors to harass them and make Christ's service uncomfortable. Let us bear it patiently and not count it a strange thing. 
The words of the Lord Jesus should often come to our minds. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we're treading on holy ground as we gaze upon our Savior and His passion and His suffering. Not only His death, as His suffering will culminate in the death of the Son of God, of Your Son, but also the ridicule and the shame. Lord, the mocking. Father, He did this for us. We're so grateful to You for sending Him into the world because we would not have hope otherwise. Father, He is our hope. Help us to cherish and treasure Christ above anything in this world. There's so, there are so many competing messages and so many competing pleasures in this world. Father, help us by your grace to recognize that, Lord, the passing pleasures of sin are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is found in Christ. Give us a greater, more fervent love for him so that we would walk in loving obedience, grateful obedience, and grateful service. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.